0: Well, it is great to see each of you back this evening. I am always encouraged whenever I'm about to get into the Word, whenever there's theology that comes through the song that leads right back into what we're teaching for the evening. And By the way, whenever we get to a place you can no longer sing about the blood of Jesus in a worship service, you're in a bad place theologically. It's, it is good, good to be in the house of God tonight. So, when I first became a pastor back in 2000, there was a number of things that shocked me. We don't have enough time to share everything that shocked me when I became a pastor, but we'll just leave it with the fact that there were a number of things that were shocking. But one of those is some statistics that I began to read about in relation to the Southern Baptist Convention. And in case you did not know, this is a Southern Baptist church, just in case you all did not know that. So, anyway... Now, I want you to keep in mind, as I share some of these statistics, that Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in America. By far, Southern Baptists have been either the leading or one of the leading evangelistic denominations in America. When you think about those who are going to stand on scripture, Southern Baptists are usually right there in the mix of that. So when I began to read some of these statistics, I was just a little bit shocked. So, here's what I found. Over 50% of Southern Baptist churches, when I started as a pastor back in 2000, had not seen a single person come to faith in Christ in the previous year. Over 50%. I just began to do some numbers. If each of those churches has one pastor, and there's four thousand or 47,500 SBC churches in North America. That would mean 47,500 pastors had not led a single person to faith in Christ in a year. If each of those churches had at least three deacons, and you all know a Southern Baptist church, there's going to be some deacons in that place. So if each of them had just three deacons, then that is going to mean that 71,250 deacons had not led a single person to faith in Christ. If each of those churches had at least three Sunday school classes, and that's a very small number, that would mean that 71,250 Bible teachers had not led a single person to faith in Christ. The average size of an SBC church at that time, and it's not changed a whole lot since then, is 80 people. So, if you've got half of those churches with 80 people in average attendance, that would mean 1.9 million Southern Baptists had not led a single person to faith in Christ in a year. And when I began to read those statistics, it almost sounded like a bad joke. Like, how many Southern Baptists does it take to lead a person to Christ? I don't know, but apparently more than 1.9 million based on those statistics, So here's another one that was a hard stat for me to swallow at that time. A church is considered to be in the top 1% of all churches, regardless of denomination, regardless of size, if at least 29 people come to faith in Christ in a year. Top 1%. So when I first heard those stats, I'm a brand new pastor, and you know at that point in your life, There's all sorts of great ideas that somebody taught you in seminary. And I was like, man, we're going to change the world. And I did not know exactly what was going to happen on this, but here's what I was convinced of, that our church was not going to be one of those statistics. So the church that we went to in North Carolina, First Church, it was one that for seven years prior had not led a single person to faith in Christ in seven years. In 87 churches within that local uh, association, we were tied for dead last in the number of people coming to faith in Christ. So when we got there, they were storing lawn furniture and Christmas ornaments in the baptistry. That should tell you the priority that was being placed on baptism. So I began to pray and I shared with our church. I said, by the grace of God, the first Sunday of every single month, we're going to have people to baptize. Amen. And one after another, they asked the same thing. It was, the, here's the question, who are you going to baptize? Like, we've not seen somebody come to faith in Christ. And I just said, here's what I know. There's people in our community who need Jesus. There's a gospel that saves. And we got a message we need to get out into the community. So we're going to share the gospel, and we're going to see what God does. And we were passionate about sharing the gospel. We trained people on sharing the gospel. We, we trained people on weekly visitations. We went out into our community and we dropped by homes and we knocked on doors and we disrupted more evening meals than you could shake a stick at. I mean, we, you know, you know if you've been on visitation before and you knock on that door and all of a sudden the lights dim down in the house, you know they were not expecting you on that night. So we'd go through, and I mean, we would knock on doors. We'd see people walk around the back of the house. We'd follow them on around to the back of the house. I mean, in fact, in hindsight, we probably would have been labeled stalkers, like SBC stalkers, but we were going after people. Our first year, 130 people came to faith in Christ. The second year, 120 people came to faith in Christ. The church went from dead last to tied at number one, for having the most people come to faith in Christ in a single year and be baptized. During that same time, other churches began to take note. Now here's the interesting thing. The other churches didn't want to train their people in evangelism, but they sent their people to our church to be trained in evangelism. And we would take them out on visitation with us as well. Because remember, it's not about our church, it's about His kingdom. So we would tell them, hey, you all bring your prospect list with you, and we will help you as far as going out. So we had people going out, different churches. We'd come back together, and we'd celebrate what God was doing, and people saved, and we were excited about everything that God was doing. And here's what happened. I was excited. The church was excited. I thought God was excited. And at the end of two years, curiosity got the best of me. If 130 people came to faith in Christ in the first year, 120 the second year, that's 250 people. And I started looking around on Sunday, and I'm like, where are they at? A lot of people prayed prayers, but here's the thing, you don't get over Jesus. If you can get over him, you didn't have him. So I'm starting to look out, and and I knew that a number of those people we're out-of-town guests. They came in on special events like Easter or Christmas, and we would present the gospel, and people would come to faith in Christ. I also knew that some people had moved away. But what about the rest? After two years, I could put my hand on about 30 people. That was disturbing to me. And I began to share what I found with some other pastors, and they are like, we see the same thing happen in our churches. And I was like, so what are you doing? And I'm like, we don't know. And I was like, guys, that's not good. So it was in 2001 that God began taking me on a journey through Scripture of what does it look like for somebody to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Because the Great Commission is not go and help them pray a prayer. It's go and make disciples. And if people are not following Jesus, they're not disciples. So we went through and we trained and we prayed and we encouraged and we shared as much as what we possibly could but here's what i'll tell you the process of moving a mindset of pray a prayer to that's not the end game to faithful devoted disciples who are making disciples can i just tell you there's a lot of work that goes from here to hear. If the church is not willing to be involved in the hard work, we're in trouble there too. We have to be willing to wade into the messes of life with people and say, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus at this point in your life. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ in your workplace. This is what it looks like to be a godly leader within your home. This is what it looks like to have a devotional time with God. It takes time of working with people for there to be disciples who are made. So here's a key concept that I want to share with you all this evening. That is, most questions about salvation are rooted in confusion over the gospel. Most questions about salvation are rooted in confusion over the gospel. Now, for those of you that are used to some good fill-in-the-blanks and stuff like that, you will notice there's, there's a lot of fill-in-the-blank room on your current piece of paper right now. And, and let me just kind of go back and tell you all what we're doing on this. At the end of this, there's going to be a printed piece that will have probably 90% of what I'm going to cover throughout the course of these Sunday evenings. I want you to have the information in your hand. But I also want there to be a time when we're going through it that you're listening, processing what I'm saying, writing it out in your own words. Because also there's things that I'm going to share that I don't share at other times. So take notes during this time. And by the time it's done, put those in conjunction with the printed pieces that you will be given once this is finished. So if you have your Bibles already with you, go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. And this evening we are going to be in verses 25 through 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 25 through 40. So in this section of scripture, we have what has been referred to as the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And this is one of those stories that is rare within the Bible because it actually shares the salvation experience from God's perspective, the Ethiopian's perspective, as well as Philip's perspective. So you get a chance to see this one moment from a number of different angles. Now the bigger theme that is taking place in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is the spread of the gospel to all segments of society. Each of these different chapters has a conversion story. So in chapter 8 is the Ethiopian eunuch as he comes to faith in Christ. According to the genealogical records, the Ethiopians were descendants of Ham, based upon Genesis chapter 10, verse 6. In chapter number 9, we had the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a Jew and therefore would have been a descendant of Shem, Genesis chapter 10, verse 21. And then in chapter 10, there is the conversion of Cornelius, who is a Gentile. He would have been a descendant of Japheth, based upon Genesis chapter 10, verses 2 through 5. So these different groups, they represent the ethnological as well as the geographical divisions after the flood. Everybody who is now populated earth is going to trace their lineage back to one of those three. So While you see all of those, it is a beautiful picture of the fact the gospel is not just for one group of people. The gospel can change anyone, the gospel is for everyone. So I want us to take a moment and we're going to look at three critical components of the gospel based upon this particular text. And I'm just going to encourage you to keep your Bible open as we go back and refer to the passages on our way through. So here's the first piece that I want you to see. The gospel is empowered by the work of God's Spirit. The gospel is empowered by the work of God's Spirit. In other words, if God's Spirit is not actively drawing a person, to Christ in repentance. You and I cannot do that ourselves. You do know that we cannot save anyone. That's above our pay grade. Our ability on this is simply to walk out a life of faithfulness and an example and share with others what Christ has done for us. But at the end of the day, it has to be empowered by God's Spirit. Now if we fail to understand this truth, or if we reject this truth, we will always be confused about salvation. In John chapter 15, verse 26, it says, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit bears witness of Christ. John chapter 16, verse 8 says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It has to be that the Spirit of God is bringing that conviction. Here's what I love. You all might have seen this at some point yourself. This might have even been you at some point. And that is, a lot of times come Mother's Day, there will be people who show up at church that the only reason they're in church is because their mom said, the only thing I want for Mother's Day is for you to come with me to church. And they will come into church and you know they don't want to be there. And and you know that feeling. And they'll sit there and they kind of prop themselves back like this. It's like the mentality, just bless me if you can. I'm here, let's just go ahead and get this thing over with. And they're sitting there and here's what happens. The worship takes place and God begins to soften hearts. And they look around them and they're like, What are these people doing? Curiosity starts to get people. And then the word of God is opened up. And the truths of God's word begin to penetrate a person's heart. And they go from not interested and not listening to all of a sudden they start to lean in a little bit because they're like, it sounds like he's talking to me. And then all of a sudden, they're sitting there, and there's conviction that begins to come up. And it gets to the invitation time, and somebody presents the gospel message. And that same hardened person who was propped back saying, bless me if you can, tears start to come down their face. I don't even know what's going on with me right now. I didn't even want to be here. Here's what happened. The Holy Spirit of God got on them. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God in order to bring conviction in a heart, opening that individual to the gospel message. You and I cannot do it. I can preach till my tongue falls out. I cannot bring the conviction that the Spirit of God can. We need the Spirit of God. So there's three biblical truths that fight the heresy of man-empowered salvation. Here's the first. First. No one is saved by their works. No one. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 should settle that. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one is saved by their works. Here's another one. No one is saved by their righteousness. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. It says, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. A person is not saved because they've just not been that bad. Sometimes people think, like, they they have this cosmic scale in their mind, and they're like, why do you think you should go to heaven? Well, I've really not done anything that bad. Listen, No one is saved based upon their own righteousness. In fact, in that scenario, it's somebody who doesn't understand the nature of sin. Here's one of the best ways I know how to capture that. If somebody walks into a convenience store and they steal one little piece of candy, the moment they take it, here's the label they just got, thief. Doesn't matter if they stole one piece, a thousand pieces, are a million pieces. The first time, there's now a label. It's thief. At the same time, it doesn't matter if somebody has sinned one time, a thousand times, or a million times. The moment sin enters the equation, there's a title that comes with it, sinner. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This, this is a thing, sin separates us from God. So it's not about the magnitude of our sin. It's not about the number of our sins. It is about the nature of sin. Sin separates us from God. So there's another piece, and that is no one is saved by their decision. Now listen carefully on this one. Listen to these passages, and if you want to work with it, just sit in these texts themselves. John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. John chapter 6 verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John chapter 6 verse 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Salvation is the work of God. Now here's the thing. Here's the reason I bring that up. There is a an important aspect in the fact when somebody hears the gospel and there is a tension there is a pull there is a desire for what is being offered it is so important that that person does not turn away that voice that call that appeal for that person to say i'll do that later on i'll be saved next week i'll, I'll pray a prayer a year from now i've got a lot of living left to do i, I don't want to do that yet that's dangerous. It's the fact that unless the Spirit of God is drawing that person, they cannot pray a prayer, make it their decision, and right on that spot. It has to be that God is pulling that person in salvation. Now, the reason I bring each of those pieces up is if we do not understand that, we are going to find ourselves many times walking with a type of pressure on us that it is our job To save that person. Listen, you cannot share the gospel clear enough that apart from the spirit of God's work in that person's life, they're going to get saved. But then there's going to be those times, and I've done it myself. I'm I'm presenting the gospel, and I confuse myself sometimes when I'm presenting the gospel. And I'm like bumbling through my words, and all of a sudden the spirit of God saves that person. And here's what you just found out. God can do what you can't do. The issue is, will you share So apart from what we just discussed, there are two insurmountable barriers that keeping humanity from grasping salvation through individual effort. The first is we are spiritually dead and unable to respond. Ephesians chapter two, verse one says, you were dead in trespasses and sin. To be physically dead means that a person is unable to respond to physical stimuli. To be spiritually dead, Means a person is unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. So if you want to test this, go out to the nearest cemetery, share the gospel, and have an invitation. Now, if somebody responds out of that, you just saw a miracle happen right there. Here's the thing dead people don't respond. Did you know apart from God opening your heart? to understand and receive the gospel message, none of us would have responded to God. It has to be that he's the one doing the work. Now, there's a second insurmountable barrier. It's the barrier of deception. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthian believers, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Satan and his demons are actively involved in deceiving people that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. You probably had the conversations with people you know as well. In your mind, it is so unbelievably clear, you don't understand how the other person doesn't get it. And you're trying to share the gospel, and, and they start bringing up things that you're like, that's not even a part of the conversation. Like, that, that's not even an important issue. And it's like, you, you can't steer it over there. What you're seeing is the enemy of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the glory of the gospel of Christ. So, we need the Holy Spirit to quicken a dead spirit and to illumine a deceived mind. Because dead men don't act and deceived men don't believe. The Bible clearly shows that it is God who's the one who provides the way of salvation. It is the work of the Spirit of God quickening that dead spirit, illumining that deceived mind, calling a person to himself in salvation. So in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, you'll notice that the Holy Spirit is clearly at work within the story. It is the Holy Spirit that maneuvers Philip into a strategic position. Verse number 26, we find it says, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Verse number 29, it tells us, the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join the chariot. The circumstances that led to the eunuch's salvation were specifically arranged by God. You could make the argument that it's the Holy Spirit who stirred the man's heart with questions. It's the Spirit who is the one who prepared Philip with the right answers. It's the Spirit who called this eunuch to salvation. We need the Spirit of God to go ahead of us, to prepare the hearts of those along the way, as well as to quicken a dead spirit, to illumine a deceived mind, to instill truth, to call a person to himself in salvation. Apart from the Spirit's work, we cannot do it ourselves. So here's the next piece. The gospel is grounded in the truths of God's word. The word of God is essential when it comes to salvation. Listen to these passages. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 In him you also after listening to the message of truth the gospel of your salvation having also believed you were sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23 For you have been born again not of the seed which is perishable but imperishable that is through the living and enduring word of God The holy spirit reveals the work of Christ Through the Word of God. So let's pause there for just a moment. How do you see that in the story? How do you see the Word of God being used in the story? Well, you find that the eunuch was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And in the text, it spoke of the Lamb of God, and the eunuch didn't understand what the text was talking about. So Philip asked him, Do you understand what you're reading? To which the man responded, how could I unless someone guides me? Then he invites Philip to sit down and to share with him. By the way, wouldn't that be so awesome instead of you trying to force your way on somebody in salvation for the spirit of God to be doing the work and they say, could you explain to me what the word of God means in this moment? That's a good time right there. Okay. Okay. Pause, we're going to, we're, we've got to get this. This is one God, God blew my mind on this a number of years ago. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, into the othermost parts of the earth. A witness never calls themselves to the stand. They are called upon to testify of what they have seen, what they have heard, or what they have personally experienced. There's a lot of pressure that believers walk with. That they're they're always trying to maneuver the conversation. And sometimes we think that our maneuvering is helping. Other times it's not. Here's one of the things I encourage people to do in the first church that we pastored. When I came to this passage, it was talking about the fact that we are his witnesses. I said, I'm going to encourage you to write a list out of everyone in your family, every friend that you know of, If you don't know of where they stand before God, put their name on the list and ask God to bring that person to you with questions about the gospel. And I said, here's what that's gonna do. Number one, it's gonna send you back to God in prayer. Number two, it's going to bring the conversation back to a place that the Spirit of God has an opportunity to do a work in your life and you're gonna recognize it's Him. And number three, You'll also recognize if you've isolated yourself to the point you don't know any lost people anymore. So this one lady came to me, and it was like a week and a half later, and she said, I only had one name I could put on that list. It was a nephew of mine that I've not talked to in seven years. And this was like on a Wednesday night, and she came running down the aisle, and she was like, Pastor, you will never believe it. But she said, I've not talked to this young man. And I get a call last week and he said, I'm going through some issues in my life and you're the only Christian I know. Would you be willing to share what God did in your life? I got a chance to go over because she was like, I don't know how to close the deal. That's the funny thing when when people say, I don't know how to close the deal. So they call in the pastor on this. They're like, I got him all the way up to the finish line. Go ahead and take him over from there. But she called and like, could you meet my husband and I out at our house? Because he's ready. I went down there. I mean, hey, at this point, I'm like, you're going to get a chance to watch as We walk through the gospel together. The young man prayed to receive Christ in their living room. Here's the thing. When she looks back at that story, there's no way she could take credit for it. She just, she started to pray, God, give me a chance to testify. And God was the one who opened the doors on that So in this, Philip did what Jesus did in John chapter 3. He did what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 9. He did what Apollos did in Acts chapter 18, what Stephen did in Acts chapter 7. That is, he knew Scripture well enough to start where the person was at and lead them to Jesus from there. We need to be that well-versed in the Word of God that regardless of what that person is walking through, we can say, here's what you're dealing with, and here's Jesus as the answer, and lead them to Christ. So here's the last piece on that. The gospel is spread by the witness of God's people. The gospel is spread by the witness of God's people. God has chosen to accomplish this sovereign work through human instruments. And sometimes I think about the fact of how frail how often we mess up, how many times we don't take the opportunity to share. And I I think to myself, God, was that the best plan? But here's the beautiful thing. We got a God who is so sovereign. As the old timers would say, he can still draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Even if we've got issues, it doesn't mean God cannot use us. So in this, Philip was an instrument in the hands of God. When he was ordered to go, he went. When he was told to join the chariot, he joined it. When he was given the opportunity to share Christ, he preached Jesus. Philip was ready. So God uses people to share the gospel message. Here's just a couple of passages to put off to the side of that. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when it talks about the fact we will be witnesses for Christ. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, all of these speak of the fact that God uses people to get his message out. In God's wisdom, that has been his plan. He doesn't have to use us, he chooses to use us. We have been entrusted with the good news of Christ and an opportunity to take the message to the ends of the earth. Now, let me pause here because I always, I always get two different camps upset with me whenever I'm teaching on the gospel. That is, I get the Calvinists upset with me because they think I'm leaning too heavily into the side of human responsibility. And I get the Arminians upset with me because they think I rely too heavily upon the sovereignty of God. So here's what I've told people over the years I am a biblical literalist. When the Bible says, apart from the Spirit of God calling someone to salvation, they cannot come, I am going to preach apart from God calling that person to salvation. They cannot come. And at the same time, when the Bible says, whosoever will, let them come. I'm gonna preach, whosoever will, let them come. And somewhere in eternity, this is making sense in the mind of God. Again, that's that's not my job. My job is not to figure out how God saves, why God saves, when God saves, and who God saves. That is in the sovereign mind of God. What he told us to do is go and preach the gospel to every creature. So here's the issue. We're either preaching the gospel to every creature or we're walking in disobedience. That's it. Now, what if somebody doesn't come to faith in Christ when you present the gospel? Leave that with God. What if, what if you get nervous when you present the gospel? Pray first and then present the gospel. What, what if you mess up along the way? You've got a sovereign God who has the ability, even in those moments, to help people block out things they don't need to hear, to focus on the things they do need to hear. I'd rather have somebody who is prayerful and desiring to share the gospel, but might stumble over their words, than somebody who is unbelievably eloquent with their speech, and they are not depending upon the Spirit of God to do the work in that person's heart. How will the gospel reach the ends of the earth? Three pieces. It happens by God's Spirit, God's Word, God's people. God's Spirit, God's Word, God's people. God's Spirit, God's Word, God's people. Why do I bring it up? Because if we're going to be about the gospel, it means we are never removed from a position of dependence and prayer that the Spirit of God would do the work. We are never in a place where a program, a resource, a training manual is somehow going to supersede what the Spirit of God is doing in that moment. God's Spirit, God's Word, God's people. We talked about the Spirit now the Word. That means we preach the Gospel. We preach it in season and out of season. We preach the Word. We go verse by verse as we have been doing in the book of Galatians on our Sunday evening. We're taking a pause going through this. We will go through verse by verse through books. We'll go through different series, but we're going to preach the Word. Why? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. People need to hear the Word of God. And By the way, I'm amazed as a pastor when I find what it is that God does within services and how it is the Spirit of God is prompting and moving a person. When I'm preaching one thing, and that person will come out, like, for example, I'll be preaching about tithing, which I don't do a whole lot, but I'll be preaching about tithing. And that person will come out like, that's the best message I've ever heard on walking in dependence and faith. And I'm like, well, I didn't say anything about dependence and faith. Well, you remember when you said this passage? And I'm like, I didn't say that passage. And then I got somebody else who comes out, and they're like, that's the best message I ever heard on going to the ends of the earth. I was like, I never said anything about going to the ends of the earth. They're like, oh, no, that's what you said at this point. And it's almost like in that moment, it's like the Spirit of God keeps dropping the truths in to people's hearts in that moment that they need for their next step in the journey. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Let the Spirit of God do the work. God's Spirit, God's Word, God's people. So as we close out this evening, we're going to do things just a little bit differently. Most of the time on a Sunday evening, we close things out with a word of prayer. We send everybody home. But tonight, we get an opportunity to be able to recognize and pray over a new group of deacons that are going to be serving right here at Sherwood. I'm excited about this opportunity. In fact, if you're not familiar with the deacon body and where that comes in, here's your Here's your one-minute crash course on the deacon body. You can trace it back over into Acts chapter 6 when there was contention between Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews about the distribution of food to widows. And there was contention that was happening within the early church and the apostles basically said this. They said, it's not good for us to walk away from prayer and the Word of God in order to serve tables. So they said, find us seven men of good reputation, filled with the Spirit of God and wisdom that they might serve in this area. And that's exactly what they did. The church obeyed and God blessed, not only bringing unity, not only helping to bring about a connection and taking care of a legitimate need, but continuing to move the mission of God forward. The deacon body is a group that is chosen to serve, to help keep unity within the church, to help ensure that the church can stay on mission with God. I am grateful for what the deacon body does here at Sherwood. So, in just a moment, I believe Ben Proctor, as you come this way, Ben is our chairman of deacons, and he is going to lead in prayer, and he's also going to give some directions on this. But just before he does that, let me pause for a second. If you are currently a deacon here at Sherwood, or if you have previously served as a deacon here at Sherwood, would you stand where you are for just a moment, I want you to look around the room. These are guys who have been shepherding and caring and loving on this church for a while. Would you give them a round of applause? Thank you all for what you do. So I'm going to turn it over now to Mr. Ben and allow him to move forward things from there.